Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got stories about yet another storm bringing flooding into Provincetown last weekend, ongoing turmoil in Wellfleet's town government, and Ira Wood is here with a matter of opinion about spirits of winter's past. The powerful storm that blew through New England last Saturday caused major coastal flooding from Boston to Maine and brought saltwater flooding into several sections of Provincetown. Water flowed onto Commercial Street at the Ice House Condominiums and St. Mary's of the Harbor Episcopal Church near Daggett Lane, formed large pools around Suzanne's Garden in the East End and near the Provincetown Inn in the West End. Fortunately, flood damage to homes and businesses in the most recent storm appears to have been less than that caused by a similar storm in December of 2022, even though the water levels in Provincetown Harbor were almost a full foot higher this year. In fact, the tide gauge at McMillan Pier recorded a water level of 14.7 feet, only 8 inches below the recent flood of record from the January 4, 2018 storm that sent water down Gosnold Street and soaked Town Hall in several feet of seawater. The U.S. Geological Survey installed the tide gauge at McMillan Pier in 2014. Given the extremely high water level, the January 13th storm is almost as notable for what did not happen that day. Areas that flooded in 2018, including the Gosnold Street pathway to Bradford Street, did not flood this time. Houses that flooded in 2022 along Howland Street and Daggett Lane suffered from salt-soaked yards, but none was actually damaged inside, according to homeowners there. Paul Fenizzi's restaurant, which had two feet of water inside it in 2022, had only a few inches this year. The building had been retrofitted last year to better resist water, and the owner was able to vacuum out the dining room and open his restaurant for dinner after this year's storm. At the Ryder Street Beach, a four-foot sand berm that the Department of Public Works installed prevented water from crossing the beach and entering Gosnold Street. The storm still produced damage throughout the town. Several units at Captain Jack's Wharf flooded, and the floorboards and basements around Suzanne's Garden were soaked. Splashing waves hammered waterfront properties up and down the shore, and many property owners were not in town to assess the damage. The DPW had made free sandbags available to the public before the storm and brought in three pallets of filled sandbags to the Ice House and another three to St. Mary's for volunteers to install. The owners of the elevated house at 509 Commercial Street built a sandbag wall across that property and added loose sand and wooden stakes to create a man-made dune in advance of the storm. Neither the dune at 509 Commercial nor the sandbag walls at the Ice House and St. Mary's survived the pummeling waves of the storm. Waves crashing into the seawalls sent shallow rivers of salt water over the parking lots at the Ice House and St. Mary's and onto Commercial Street.
A two-foot pond formed on Commercial Street, blocked by a sandbag dam across Daggett Lane. Water leaked around its edges and through gaps in the sandbags, filling yards along Daggett Lane and Howland Street, but did not reach the houses there. The turmoil in Wellfleet's town hall continued this week as Assistant Town Administrator Silvio Janeo resigned during a select board executive session on Tuesday. Janeo had been named interim town administrator by the board one week earlier. He was to take over the job of town administrator Rich Waldo, who resigned on December 20th. Waldo has asked the board to make February 9th his last day. This week's closed-door session of the board was called for the purpose of negotiating Janeo's new contract. The members of the select board, Janeo and Waldo, all declined to comment on the latest turn of events. Waldo had resigned after 18 months on the job. Janeo was to step in for Waldo on February 10th after serving three months as his assistant. Janeo had previously been director of human resources in Plymouth. He said he would begin searching for an interim assistant administrator to fill his current role. Janeo told the board that his priority as acting town administrator would be to make sure the ship stays on course in terms of staffing. This spring, Wellfleet voters will head to the ballot box to vote for two of the five members of the town's select board. Recent Wellfleet elections have not featured a lot of candidates. Select Board Vice Chair John Wolf won as a write-in candidate in 2021. Select Board Member Tim Sayre was the only candidate on the ballot to replace Kathleen Bacon after she resigned near the end of her term last summer. Kurt Felix also ran as a write-in candidate and lost by only seven votes to Sayre. Both Wolf and Sayre will complete their respective terms in May and both say that they plan on running for another three-year term. The deadline for obtaining nomination papers is March 7th, and the last day to submit them with the required 20 voter signatures is March 11th. The voter registration deadline is April 12th for the election on April 29th. The town moderator is also on the ballot, as are seats on the elementary school committee, the board of library trustees, the cemetery commission, and the Housing Authority. Living on the Outer Cape without a car can be a challenge for area residents who need to get to services that are only available further up Cape. A bus trip from Provincetown could take more than two hours each way, and schedules and stops are not always convenient. MassHealth provides prepaid rides, but the service, run by private companies, is available only to qualifying MassHealth patients. For those needing help with transportation, not just for medical appointments, but for trips to the grocery store and even outings to the movies, getting there often only happens thanks to volunteers like Marianne Thomas. Thomas recently helped WOMR DJ Nancy Yaw get to her dentist appointment in South Dennis. Along the way, the two sang songs and helped Nancy get her set list together for her next show. The two were connected through Helping Our Women, the Provincetown-based nonprofit where Thomas's volunteer duties have included running errands, delivering food, and driving clients to medical appointments, some of them as far away as Boston. How isn't the only organization filling the transportation gap? 
Chris Hoddle, director of the Provincetown Council on Aging, says that the group provided over 1,400 rides last year to residents over 60. The councils on aging in Provincetown, Truro, and Wellfleet all offer door-to-door rides to medical appointments for residents in that age group. The rides are free. Donations are suggested. In East Ham, the Council on Aging provides rides for a fee. The senior centers also organize other, more leisurely trips, but rides to medical appointments remain the most popular service. Jill Brookshire at the AIDS Support Group of Cape Cod points out that the absence of certain essential medical services on the Outer Cape means many need to travel to Hyannis or beyond to receive care. She says that without adequate and accessible transportation, people can't get the care they need. The AIDS Support Group also calls on its volunteers to provide transportation to medical appointments for clients who don't qualify for rides from MassHealth. They also deliver meals to more than 40 residents in Provincetown and Truro. If you need help getting around, or if you'd like to provide that service to others, you can get in touch with Helping Our Women at their website, helpingourwomen.org, and the various town councils on aging through those town websites, and the AIDS Support Group at asgcc.org. The sun came out long enough between the two big winter storms for people of all ages to gather in Wellfleet to call for racial justice on the January 15th birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. The day's events started with drumming, singing, and chalk drawing next to Town Hall. About 150 people offered donations to the local food pantry and conducted a silent walk down Wellfleet's Main Street. Afterwards, there was a full house for the presentation of Judith Partilow's Neighbors at Wellfleet Preservation Hall. The play is a collection of stories of experiences of racism on Cape Cod. A table with information about legislative agenda items was busy, with people signing letters in support of the Act to Advance Health Equity and of the Indigenous Legislative Agenda. Art by Wellfleet Elementary School students is always part of the MLK Day in Wellfleet. Now in its 22nd year, this year's Art Peacemakers show also features works by community friends and professional artists. The Art Peacemakers MLK Art Show for Racial Justice is still on view at Preservation Hall through January 29th. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. Construction at the Cloverleaf Project on Highland Road in Truro has yet to begin. Seven years after the state transferred the 3.9-acre property to the town specifically for affordable housing. The development's total cost is now projected to be as much as $28 million, leaving the project with a funding shortfall of between $4 and $7 million, according to developer Ted Malone. Construction was expected to begin in the summer of 2023, but several factors have contributed to the delay, including increased construction costs and the effect of higher interest rates on the developer's borrowing ability. 
According to the comprehensive permit issued by the Zoning Board of Appeals, the Cloverleaf Development's 39 units will serve a mixed-income community with tiered restrictions of 30, 60, and 100 percent of area median income. There would be a combination of one, two, and three-bedroom apartments. On Tuesday, Malone said he's submitted a request to the Zoning Board of Appeals for an increase in the number of units from 39 to 43. The development's footprint and the total number of bedrooms wouldn't change. Rather, four of the planned three-bedroom units would be split into one- and two-bedroom units. That modification would better meet the need on the Cape and may also help secure additional funding. Community Housing Resource Malone's company is working with contractor Delphi Construction to find ways to make the construction more efficient, and the proposed shift in the number of units is part of that process. Malone hopes he won't have to wait until town meeting in May to secure more funds, but it's unclear whether there's more money available from the town's affordable housing trust, and funds are scarce at the county level. Truro Town Manager Darren Tangerman said he has a meeting scheduled for January 29th with State Senator Julian Sear, State Representative Sarah Peake, and developer Malone to discuss funding possibilities. Sear said that the town of Truro hasn't had to spend a significant amount of money on Cloverleaf, aside from legal fees related to frivolous lawsuits that were thrown out of court. But Sear said that Truro may need to follow the example of Provincetown in making direct appropriations to subsidize housing. Malone is hoping to see sufficient funds committed by August, with shovels in the ground by September. Construction is currently projected to take 22 months. The path for home rule legislation is rarely smooth, even when measures are overwhelmingly endorsed by town meetings. Although state legislators may not stand directly in the way of legislation requested by local communities, they don't necessarily make it easy either. Chatham currently has six home rule bills pending before the state legislature, one has been revoted and refiled numerous times since it was originally endorsed by town meeting in 2015. The most recent special legislation filed by the town, approved by town meeting last May, will likely be the first of the pending batch to be signed into law, and it'll have a direct impact on one prominent local business. The legislation seeks an additional year-round alcoholic beverage license for Pate's Restaurant at 1260 Main Street. Currently, the restaurant has a seasonal license, which allows it to open from April 1st to January 15th. Year-round on-premise liquor licenses are allocated by population, and all of Chatham's 17 licenses are currently spoken for. After voters endorsed the special legislation by a vote of 228 to 62, the restaurant's owners figured it would be smooth sailing on Beacon Hill. But after a hearing before the Joint Committee on Consumer Protection and Professional Licensure in September, 
the committee redrafted the bill to convert one of the town's seasonal licenses to year-round instead of creating a new license. The bill was endorsed by the committee and sent to the House Committee on Steering, Policy, and Scheduling, where it sat until last week when it was passed by the House and sent along to the Senate. On Tuesday, Cape and Island Senator Julian Sear said the bill was enacted by both the Senate and the House. It was sent on to Governor Maura Healey for her signature. The governor has 10 days to sign the bill. Because Pate's current seasonal license required that it close on January 15th, the restaurant had to lay off its staff of 35 or more full- and part-time workers. Even after Healy signs the bill and it becomes law, the restaurant owners still have some hoops to jump through before they can reopen. Pates must go through the process of applying for the new license, even though the legislation is tied directly to the restaurant's address. Once the select board awards the license to Pates, it must then be reviewed by the State Department of Revenue to ensure the business is up to date on its taxes. It also requires approval by the State Alcoholic Beverages Control Commission. That will all take time. Pates co-owner James Peterson said that if all approvals are received, the restaurant will be prepared to open prior to April 1st. Peterson thanked both Sear and Representative Sarah Peake for helping the business get through the process. The Bass River Bridge has served as a vital connection between West Dennis and South Yarmouth on Route 28 since the mid-1930s. After nine decades of wear and tear, a look beneath the bridge reveals crumbling concrete pilings and exposed rebar. The bridge was classified as structurally deficient and considered in poor condition by the Federal Highway Administration in November of 2021. Due to these structural deficiencies, the State Department of Transportation will perform maintenance on the bridge through May, with a $40 million project to completely replace it scheduled for bidding later this year. Maintenance will include work on the underside concrete slabs and pilings and the deck, reinforcing the bridge until it can be totally replaced. Local officials don't expect replacement construction to begin until the spring of 2025. Most of the repairs will be done below the roadway surface, which will mean minimal impacts on traffic. Massachusetts Department of Transportation spokesman John Goggin said the bridge is safe in its current state, but structural deficiencies are better handled in the long term by replacing it rather than continued maintenance. No maintenance or construction will be done during the summer months. While members of the Foxborough Select Board agreed that Harwich Town Administrator Joseph Powers gave a strong interview for the town manager position there, the Foxborough Board voted 4-1 to one on Tuesday night to name acting town manager Paige Duncan to that position. Powers was one of three finalists interviewed for the position last week. Duncan served as the Director of Land Use and Economic Development for the past eight years in Foxborough and was named Acting Town Manager in August. 
Powers' three-year contract as Harwich Town Administrator runs out at the end of June. His municipal experience includes time in Braintree as a selectman and town clerk, a year in Wellfleet as assistant town administrator and town clerk, and five years in Harwich as assistant town administrator, interim administrator, and now town administrator. According to data from the State Department of Public Health, calls to emergency medical services for opioid-related emergencies decreased on the Outer Cape last year. There were approximately 26 such calls in 2022 and approximately 17 in 23, according to the state, which defines its numbers as estimates because of inconsistent data reporting across various emergency service providers. According to harm reduction specialist Kim Powers, that downward trend is likely the result of the wider availability of Narcan rather than of the decreasing use of opioids. Narcan is a life-saving medication that can reverse opioid overdoses. Powers said many users might hesitate to call 911 for fear of the consequences of a visit from law enforcement. If Narcan is readily available, An overdosing person can quickly be rescued without losing critical minutes or involving law enforcement. Community organizations like the AIDS Support Group of Cape Cod, town health and police departments, and EMS organizations are all helping to distribute Narcan. The doses are easy to use and can now be found in boxes across the Outer Cape. There are 10 such boxes in Provincetown, including one in Town Hall, and efforts are being made to install them in more bars and restaurants near first aid kits. The AIDS support group tracks its boxes carefully, both to make sure they're full and to generate data on how often they're being used. The group's chief program officer, Heather Murphy, said those data show that Narcan use was up 30% on the Outer Cape last year, with an even distribution across zip codes. State data show six recorded opioid overdose deaths in the Outer Cape Towns in the four years from 2015 to 18, while the four years from 2019 to 22 had 15 such deaths. It can be hard to be sure of a trend when overall numbers are small, but opioid deaths have risen noticeably in Barnstable County as a whole over those same years, and on Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard as well. Since the same trend is evident across the Cape and Islands, the Outer Cape's increase in overdose deaths is probably not a fluke of small numbers. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. Long ago and far away, but in a winter just like this one, a woman lost her leg in my driveway, in a drift of snow so deep that five people went out searching for it with shovels and flashlights. We might have canceled the dinner party, but nothing ever seemed to stop Lizzie Upham. Not a prosthetic leg, not a sudden snowstorm, not a steep hundred-foot-long driveway. 
When she left her car and found herself stuck up to her waist, she yelled for help, and five of us came crashing down the hill to carry her up to the house, minus the artificial leg, which was eventually dug out and towel-dried. If you've lived on the Outer Cape a long time, you got to know a cast of eccentrics that could rival any of those of Greenwich Village or North Beach or any place that free spirits moved to leave the straight life behind. Lizzie Upham was a sculptor who ran a gallery and threw wonderful opening night parties and mentored younger artists, but she was only one of many like herself who became truly free on the Outer Cape, either sexually or artistically or both, who had fled the expectations of uptight America. Most of them loved to talk politics, and all of them were well-read. They all liked to eat and drink, too, although none of them had the kinds of granite kitchens and trophy homes we find out here today. In fact, they had left their former lives to live in a place where friendship and artwork and passion meant a lot more than money. And they lived here the year-round, too, they might crash on a friend's couch in Key West for a while, but winter was when they hit their studios and did their work. Winter was the time we had the best parties, too. One old friend, who had lived on a tight budget after losing all her inherited wealth to a philandering husband, was given an annual Christmas present of a thousand dollars by her son, and with that money, through an outrageous party in a small house on Slough Pond. We went every year and never failed to lose the muffler of our Volvo in some enormous pothole on Black Pond Road. But we would never miss the buffet she spent days preparing or the well-liquored-up bar or the large Christmas tree lit with candles. One year my wife saved the life, or at least the sports coat, of the minimalist painter Myron Stout, who backed into the tree and caught fire. They were painters and photographers, writers for the New Yorker magazine, designers who built and lived in the homes that are now preserved by the Cape Cod Modern House Trust. And they were as much a part of what made the Outer Cape unique as the beaches and the sunsets and the wildlife, not because they were famous, but because they created strong and enduring bonds with the locals, people their own age as well as mine. One winter night in what had been the flagship restaurant in Provincetown, I performed a new short story at a reading and was immediately confronted by an angry lady who said very loudly, That sucked. My confidence completely sapped. I made my way to the bar and by chance sat next to Alan Dugan, a grizzled old man in a flannel shirt who also happened to be a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet. When he asked me what had just happened, I asked him if anyone had ever gotten in his face and said his work sucked. All the time, he dropped his hand on my shoulder. All the time. They're all dead now, of course. Their houses sold for prices that are many times what they were bought for, sold to people who enjoy the Cape, surely, but don't need this rough peninsula in all weathers and seasons because it's a place that makes them free. I don't think about them much in the summer when the restaurants are bustling and the tourists fill the streets, but in the winter I do. In the winter it's plain that we now live in a place where many of our neighbors no longer have to work, a place full of summer residents and retired folks 
who have the time and the means to leave an entire house abandoned and chase the warmth of the sun. There's no one to blame, of course. Change is just the way of the world. It's just that this time of year, the trees are bare and the shadows are long and the snow falls on empty streets where the wind seems to echo, at least to me, with the spirits of winter's past. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's stirred not shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported Outermost Community Radio, WOMR. Jogmo yemama wangadero Jogmo yemama wangadero